0: Well, in um, the middle of World War II, C.S. Lewis, a, a famous Christian author, was at church and he was bored to death. And it's, in his boredom, he's like, this is the worst sermon ever. He started to daydream, started to brainstorm, and he, he came, came up with this idea of writing a book where there would be a senior devil writing to a junior devil. And, and it was basically, the, the idea being that you'd have two devils that have the purpose of tempting people and leading people astray, and, and the older is mentoring the younger. And, and so in 1942, the book is released as The Screwtape Letters. And so the, the book has Screwtape, who is a retired um, demon who, who has spent his life tempting people and leading them away from God, and now he is writing letters to his nephew, Wormwood, who he is mentoring. And and so what's happening is Wormwood, he's young, he's ambitious, and he just wants to do extreme things. He has his first patient, which is a British man that he is tasked with leading astray. And, and he just wants to do these extreme things to lead his patient astray. But it's it's um screw tape is like, hey, 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 the best way to get someone to go to hell is not through the extreme, it's through the subtle, it's through the it's through the gradual slope, it's through the soft footing, it's it's the slow and steady path and and so as you read the book it's a fast fascinating read but it gets you starting to wonder like hey is something happening behind the scenes is satan at work trying to lead me astray how am I being tempted through the normal everyday things that are happening around me and and it kind of poses the question if Satan was going to take you down how would he do it? Have you ever wondered that like if Satan was gonna take you out if he was going to ruin your life if he was going to lead you away from God how would he do it? Well, today in Revelation chapter 12, we're going to get a peek behind the scenes to see the spiritual reality that's at play at all times as Satan is at war in the spiritual realm trying to lead us astray from God. And so we're going to see that in chapter 12 today. So real quick, let me catch this up. In chapters 8 through 11, we read about seven trumpets. And these seven trumpets are judgments of God towards sinful man or towards those who have rejected God and hardened their hearts towards him. Now at the end of chapter 11, the seventh trumpet blows, and as the trumpet blows, it says the temple of heaven is opened up, and John gets to see a greater perspective of what's happening in the spiritual realm. And so now in chapters 12 and following, he's going to give us these visions of what he saw as the temple of heaven Opened up. And so in, in today in chapter 12, verses 1 through 17, we're gonna see two um, two visions and two signs, right? Two visions and two signs. So verses one through six is the first vision and the and the two signs. And so let's pick up in verse one. It says, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon, under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains. And the agony of giving birth. So this is the vision that he sees. And the first sign is a woman. And so we ask the question, well, who is this woman? Who does he see? And so if, you, if you've ever um, talked to Catholics about revelation or studied Catholicism, they do a great work to show that they believe this to be Mary. That this is Mary and this is talking about the birth of Christ. And so as we read this, I would say, yes, this absolutely is talking about Mary before Jesus was born but it's also talking about more. And so when we read Scripture, we want to do our best to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so when you see that this woman is clothed in the sun, the moon, and the stars, we should look and say, like, is that anywhere else in the Bible? And it is. It's in the book of Genesis. And so in the book of Genesis, you have Joseph and you're like, "Who in the world is Joseph? Well, Father Abraham had many sons. Isaac and Ishmael, right? And and through Abraham, God was going to save the world, right? So he's like, hey, through your lineage, I'm going to bring salvation to the world. Through um, his first son, or the son he had with Sarah, Isaac, God continues this line. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And through Jacob, he's like, all right, I'm going to use Jacob. I'm going to continue this lineage and we're going to save the world. And then Jacob has 12 sons. His favorite son was Joseph. He got the coat of many colors. Way before Dolly Parton got the coat of many colors, Joseph did. All right. And so Joseph has this dream and there's the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down to worship him. And the sun, the moon, and the stars, which represents God's people, all right, is now being represented here. So I believe the woman is absolutely talking about Mary, but I think it's also a picture of God's People. So this, is, this woman is, is meant to be a picture of all of God's people from both the Old and the New Testament. So the first sign is of the woman or a picture of God's people, right? So what's happening to God's people, right? She's pregnant. She's about to give birth. Verse 3, and another sign. So here's the second sign. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head... Seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. All right, so the second sign is of the dragon, which we're going to find out later, is Satan. And Satan is just waiting. Throughout all of history, he's waiting for this offspring that's going to save the world to be born. And when this offspring is born, his sole purpose is to devour or to destroy this child, right? So if the woman in verses 1 and 2 is Mary, this is showing us a picture of a very different Christmas story, right? Like when we think about the Christmas story, it's like, let's preach about Advent, let's talk about the coming of Christ, let's get a manger and make it seem warm and fuzzy and let's light candles and let's sing Silent Night uh, you know, and then let's go home and eat roast and open presents. And like we think of Christmas and it's like warm and fuzzies. This is like, and there was a woman about to give birth and a dragon, right? Like, who wrote that Christmas carol, right? And are we going to sing it this week? Like, no, right? But this is a very different Christmas story that shows that, yes, when Jesus was born, it was this beautiful, holy moment. But at the same time, there was also something very demonic happening behind the scenes, right? And so this is showing us in verses um, 3 through 4, through four, what was happening at the birth of Christ, that Satan was waiting to devour the child, but it also shows us what has been happening throughout all of history, that the the red dragon is also symbolic in the Old Testament of nations, right? And so through wicked people, through wicked nations, through wicked kingdoms, Satan has always been at work to try to devour the offspring from Eve that was meant to to crush his head. And so as you read scripture, you see Satan at work behind the scenes trying to to destroy God's plan. And so this happens when Cain kills Abel. Satan was behind that trying to stop the offspring from one day crushing his head. When when you see Pharaoh killing children, Satan was at work behind Pharaoh trying to stop the lineage from abraham and the nation of israel when saul is demonically possessed and trying to kill david satan is at work trying to keep David's offspring from one day being the savior of the world as you read the book of esther and you read haman who tries to to get the persian empire to commit genocide of the jewish people you see satan at work trying to keep the savior from being born As you get to Matthew and you see Herod killing the firstborn male children from Bethlehem, once again, Satan is at work because he, for all of history, has been lurking, waiting for the child to be born with the hopes of devouring it, all right? But what happens? Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his... So verse 5 is just a snapshot of Jesus' life. It's like, click one picture, this is Jesus. And the picture is Jesus is born in one moment, and in, in the next moment, he has ascended to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns until he comes again. So it's just a snapshot. But in the snapshot, we see that Jesus was born, and since we see him enthroned in heaven, we know that he was not devoured. So Satan's plan to devour the child fails. Now Jesus has risen victoriously from the grave. He has defeated Satan, and he has enthroned in heaven. Verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness, right? And so we're, we're talking about verse 1, who the woman is. Is it Mary? Yes, but is it more? We would say it's the people of God. So the people of God fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, Um, as we've been reading Revelation, something that I feel like is is continuing to come up, and and I might be wrong in this, so this is gonna be my interpretation, Um, but here's what I believe we're seeing in the book of Revelation. I believe we're seeing a lot of allusion to the Passover and to the promised land and the wilderness, which is the story of Israel. So I believe that the cross is the true and better Passover. That at the Passover, Israel was freed from their slavery to Egypt. And at the cross, we are freed from our slavery to sin. Then Israel leaves Egypt and they're headed towards the promised land, towards their final home, which I believe heaven or the, uh, that when heaven and earth unite, that is a true and better promised land. But Israel spent time in the wilderness between the Passover and the promised land. And so I believe the 1,260 days, or the 42 months, or the three and a half years, I believe that is actually representing the period of time in the wilderness. It's the time for the church between the cross and the new heaven and new earth. So I believe that we are in this wilderness, all right? And so what's happening here is that in the season that we're in, as we wait for a new heaven and new earth to come after Jesus has risen from the grave We know that we are in the wilderness, which means we are affected by sin in the world, but that God is nourishing us in this season. And so what does it mean that God nourishes us? It means he provides for us, he leads us, and he protects us. So are we in our final home? No, the earth is not our home. We are waiting for all things to be made new. We are waiting for heaven to come, but in the waiting, in the season, until heaven comes, We have this guarantee that Jesus is with us every step of the way. We have this guarantee that God is providing for us, he is leading us, and he is spiritually protecting us. All right, now let's look at the second vision, verse 7. Verse 7 begins the next vision. "'Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven.' And the the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Just take note of that word, deceiver. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers. Take note of that word accuser. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. All right. And so in verses seven through 10, what we see is that as Jesus defeats sin and death on earth, verse five, Satan is simultaneously being defeated in heaven by Michael, the angel. And so what we see is Satan, like the serpent, the dragon, the devil, Satan, all the same. So in verses 1 through 6, Satan does not defeat Jesus, right? In the first vision, Satan does not devour the child. Jesus is not defeated. Instead, Jesus is enthroned in heaven, right? So verses 1 through 6, Satan does not defeat Jesus. Now he has been cast out of God's presence and he changes course, And so in verses 7 through 17, instead of Satan trying to devour Jesus, he is now focused on devouring Jesus's followers, right? So his focus from this point on is not to devour Jesus because Jesus stands victorious in heaven. So instead, Satan's plan now is to spend every inch of his being to devour the followers of Christ, right? And so the question is, is is how does Satan do this? How does Satan seek to destroy the church? How does he seek to, to lead God's people astray? And it, it's, it's a twofold strategy. It's through accusations and it's through deception, right? Satan destroys God's people through deception and through accusations, right? So th- think about deception. Have you ever felt deceived? Have you, have you ever been like, I was deceived? I can, can I just say, I'm so thankful I don't have to date anymore? Like, like, being married is awesome. Like, I look at 20 to 30-year-olds now, and they're on dating apps. How many 20 to 30-year-olds on dating apps have felt deceived? Like, you're on whatever app you're on. Is there a Christian good one? I don't know. <laughs> All right, so whatever app you use, and you're like, this person looks good. Then you show up to meet them, and you're like, I was deceived. <laughs> like, I was deceived. Like, this is not, they used a filter on their face. Like, what in the world? Right? I feel deceived every time I get drive through food right? You're looking at the burger and the fries. The fries are just jumping out at you, and you're like, this is great. And you get the burger, and you're going, what? Like, this is... Honest moment. Can we just be thankful for Mexican food restaurants? <laughs> like, they don't deceive at all. Like, you look at a Mexican menu, it's like Senora Maria just took a picture in her, with her phone and printed it out, and they laminated it. They're like, this is what you get. Like, what's the pollo loco? It's that. That's the plate. They took the picture back there. Like, there's no deception at the Mexican restaurants. But deception is this, right? Deception is someone gets an advantage by making you believe something that's not true, right? So when you, when you are deceived, someone is gaining an advantage over you by making you believe something that is not true. And so Satan's tactic is to deceive you or to get you to believe something that's not true. And so from the Garden of Eden, this tactic has been threefold. All right? There, there's a threefold strategy that Satan has always used. The first thing is to get you to question God. Did God really say this? And so all of a sudden, you start to ask the question, is this, like, I grew up believing this, but is that really what the Bible says? Maybe it meant something different. I don't know. So the first thing is to question. The second thing is where you begin to deny. You're like, God didn't say that. Like, God, God like, he must have meant something totally different. That's not what God said. Then the third view or the third the third part of the strategy is once you've questioned it, <coughs> once you've denied it, is that you redefine it. So the third strategy is, is once you get to the point of questioning it and saying, that's not what God said, is you begin to redefine it to fit what you want. And so you're like, this is what God actually meant when he said this. And so you can take a number of sin issues in our culture and see how we as a culture have fallen in to deception by taking sin and not only accepting it but not only becoming tolerant of it but beginning to accept it and i would say even beginning to celebrate it so when i was thinking about the sins that have become normal in our culture like think about like gossip right like you have internet sites magazines like whole whole people that are dedicated to just spreading Rumors. Gossip is so normal. Greed is normal. Sexual sins are normal. Abortion has become normal. You look at things like gluttony, anger, laziness, all these things, we have been deceived into saying, well, is that really what God thought? No, God didn't say that. Here's what it really means. And all of a sudden, these things that the Bible clearly defines as sin have become things that, that are accepted and things that are even celebrated because we have been deceived. You see, the goal of Satan's deception is to make sin seem normal and to make holiness seem weird, right? That's the whole goal of Satan's deception. This threefold strategy played over the course of time will take holiness and make holiness seem abnormal or weird, and it will take things that God has clearly said are sinful and make them seem normal and become things that we even celebrate, right? So the first strategy is deception, the second part of the strategy is accusations. So Satan wants you to define who you are based off of sinful things you've done. Right, let me say that again. So this is how Satan is trying to destroy you. This is how he's trying to, de- to devour you. Satan wants you to define who you are based off of sinful things you have done. And so I see this, play, I see this, play, this, I see this played out all the time. Where Satan makes accusations against you and you begin to believe lies. So let me, just, let me just read off some of the things that Satan wants you to believe. Satan wants you to believe that you are a failure. Anybody ever felt that way? Satan wants you to believe that you are unlovable. No one could love you. Satan wants you to believe that you can never change. That addiction that you keep coming back to time and time again, it's going to hold on to you until the day you breathe your last breath. You're never going to have victory over this. You're going to live in addiction the rest of your life. Like, you can't change. He wants you to believe that you're too far gone to experience God's grace. Like, really? like Do you know what you've done? You think God, like, like you've gone too far. Like, God's grace is for that person because they have hope. But for you, too far. He wants you to believe that you're not enough. How many, how many of us feel like, I just, am I enough? Like, have I done enough? Am I enough? Can any? And his ultimate goal is to make you feel that your life's not worth living. You see, a couple of years ago, um, did some mediation between, between two parties, and, um, and one of the guys showed up to the, <coughs> to the mediation. I kid you not with a folder that had to have been six to eight inches thick. And he shows up to the table, and he slams this folder down. He opens it up, and and for, for 45 minutes and beyond, he's just pulling out papers and receipts and notes, all accusations against the person he's against to build a case against them. Satan has a folder on every single person in here. He has a folder stacked with accusations of sins you've committed, things you have done, areas that you've fallen short on. Some are true, some are half-truth, some might be blatant lies, but he has a folder stacked against you, right? And he is ready to make accusations. And so (coughs) as Satan leverages these accusations, how do we overcome? Like when we feel like we're failing, when we feel like we're not enough, when we feel unlovable, when we feel like we're too far gone to experience God's grace, when we feel like, I don't know if my life is even worth continuing to live, how do we overcome it? Verse 11 says, and they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Let me read that again and I need Bill Jolly to say, come on, because this is a verse we need to come on on. How do we defeat the attacks of Satan? Listen, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Come on. All right, I want everybody to hear this, all right? Bill is my hype man when I preach, right? everybody, the, the, the phrase is two words. What are they will Bill? Come on, let me read this. How do we overcome the attacks of Satan when he leverages accusations against us? How do you overcome it when you feel like you are a failure, when you feel like you're too far gone to experience God's grace, when you feel like you're not enough, when you feel like you're unlovable, when you feel like your life is not worth living? How do you conquer that? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Come on, on. all right? Come on, this is giving us the blueprint of how to walk in victory. This is the victory that we have. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. All right, we're going to come back to that verse because that is too good to not drill down into. So, as we keep moving on, just to get through the chapter, it says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, or God's people, who had given birth to the male child. Verse 13 shows us that because Satan could not destroy Jesus, he now tries to destroy us. But, verse 14, but the woman, or God's people, was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Verse 14, the eagle's wing connects us to the exodus, where in Israel's time in the wilderness. So what this shows us is that as God's people in the wilderness, we are exposed to the elements of a fallen world, but as we are exposed to these elements, we are being led, provided for, and spiritually protected along the way, right? Then verses 15 through 17 says, the servant poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood, but the earth came to help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. So Satan is going to continually come after us. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. and he stood on the sand of the sea. All right, what we see here is that Satan is continually waging war on those who faithfully follow Christ. Satan is constantly waging war with us through deception and through accusations. And he will continue to to try to devour us and try to destroy us until Jesus returns. And so how do we win this spiritual battle? If, If Satan is at war with us, how do we win this battle? It's two things, the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony. When you think about the blood of the lamb, think about this, because of the cross, Satan has been disarmed. He no longer has a position before God to make accusations against us. That's what verse eight tells us. Satan has been dethroned. He no longer has a position before God to leverage accusations against us. That is the good news of the blood of the lamb. Satan has been disarmed, but we are also freed through the word of our testimony, which means because of the cross, we have a greater truth because our sin is not the end of the story. Let me say that again, okay? Because of the cross, we have a greater truth. Our sin is not the end of the story. There's a movie, (coughs) (coughs) so I'm dying up here. I've held in a lot of costs. There's a movie, and I'm not I'm not condoning this movie. I'm not saying you should go watch this movie after listening to this clip. I would say don't watch this movie, but it helps my illustration. All right? There's a movie that came out in 2002 called Eight Mile, and in this movie, it kind of chronicles the life of Eminem, B. Rabbit, and um, life in Detroit. But but B. Rabbit, he's he's kind of an aspiring rapper. Okay. And in the movie, he's, he does these battle raps. And a battle rap is kind of like a verbal boxing match, right, where you take things about someone and you you creatively rhyme them or or craft them in such a way that you're taking verbal jabs at someone in hopes that you knock them down, that they can't come back, okay? And so over the course of the movie, you see that there is just thing after thing after thing that's embarrassing for B-Rabbit that can be leveraged against him that can knock him down. But every time someone takes a verbal jab, he stands back up. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank Servant's heart. Servant's heart. Um, I need a cup to spit in, like just to cock that <laughs> stuff up, you know? <laughs> You're like, ugh. did he say? We're vulnerable here. Authentic. <laughs> all right, so, but the final rap scene, right? The final rap scene is all these things B-Rabbit knows can be leveraged against him. He just stands up and says, I already know everything this guy's got to say about me. And he starts to list them off. He talks about his race. He talks about his living situation. He talks about getting jumped. He talks about the flaws of his friends. He talks about um, his girlfriend cheating on him. He just lays it all out. And then it kind of this micro mom moment. He's like, tell these people something they don't know about me. And so what I tell you that, because Satan has this folder of accusations that he can leverage against you. And we need to understand that Satan knows our sins better than we know them ourselves. And so he's going to speak these accusations over us, trying to make us fall apart spiritually, trying to to devour us and to destroy us. And as he's leveraging these accusations, we have a greater truth. If this verse is not underlined in your Bible, please underline it. (coughs) Colossians 2. Verses 13 through 15 says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses, because of all those accusations, because of all those sins, you were spiritually dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Every sin that you have committed, every sin you are committing, every sin you will commit has been fully and forever forgiven, okay? By canceling, verse 14, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so that that folder of accusations, Everyone that has a debt that says this sin deserves eternal wrath. This sin deserves death. This sin deserves for you to be eternally separated from God's grace and his love. Jesus takes that accusation, nails it to the cross, takes the blood of the lamb and stamps on it, I paid it in full. Next accusation, nails it to the cross paid it in full. Next accusation, nails it to the cross, paid it in full. Every sin you have ever committed, every sin you ever will commit, I'm telling you, Jesus has nailed it to the cross. Come on. Think about that. And here's what happens. As every accusation that Satan has leveraged has been nailed to the cross, it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed Satan, the dragon, the serpent, the devil. He has disarmed him and his demons and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, you guys. This is something that should lead us to sing and praise because Jesus has nailed our sins to the cross Satan has no accusation to leverage against you. We are called to walk in freedom from this. So, so what do we do with this? Let's just, let me put this into practice, you guys, because I want you guys to know what it looks like to walk in victory by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Think about this. Just put yourself here. Have you ever felt like a failure? Can I tell you, as a dad, and as a husband, this is the greatest thing that holds me down is constantly feeling like I'm failing at life. OK? When you feel like a failure, you can proclaim Romans 7:24, where Paul says, "Wretched man I am, but every failure I have is a, is a spot for Jesus to deliver. Yes, I'm a wretched man. Yes, I have failed, but every time I have failed, Jesus has delivered. When you feel unlovable, like oh, it breaks my heart to think that people are showing up week in and week out and just feeling like no one can love me. Like I f- remember the truth of John 3:16. For God so loved the world, He gave His Son for you. God loves you. When you feel like I'm never gonna change, like I can't change, this addiction that I keep coming back to, this addiction that has been this fog over my head, this thorn in my side. Proclaim, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will see that work to completion. When you feel like you're too far gone, that you, you've crossed that line just one too many times, there's no way that God's grace is for you. Look at 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17. Paul says that he was the chief of sinners, that none of your sin can rival or shadow the things that he has done. But you know what Jesus does? Christ came to save Sinners. No one is too far gone to experience God's grace. When you feel like you're not enough, look at Psalm 139, which says that you were knitted in your mother's womb and that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. You see, every lie that Satan speaks over you, we need to confess it, and then we need to proclaim the truth of our testimony. We need to confess the lies and proclaim the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony over them. And as we do this, we will begin to walk in freedom. Here's what I know. I know that we are all under spiritual attack at all times. But I truly believe that many in this room right now are suffering spiritual oppression and you don't even know it. I think so many people in this room right now are going through what I would call spiritual oppression and you don't know it. You don't know it because just it's become so normative in your life. I mean, to, to use the illustration from, from screw tape letters, it's Satan has you on this gradual slope, and you're just used to feeling like a failure. You're just used to feeling like you're not enough. You're just used to feeling unlovable. You're just used to feeling like you'll never change. And this, this, these lies are oppressing you, and causing you to walk in a spiritual slumber when Jesus is saying, I I, I called you to be alive. And so here's what I want us to do today. We're about to enter into a time of response. And and I just would love for you to, to maybe not move quickly through this. To take time and to ask God, are there any lies I'm believing? And let that be your confession today confess where you were believing lies and accusations from Satan, and then would you take time to proclaim the truth of the gospel over those lies? Proclaim the truth that we are given through the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, because God wants you to walk in freedom and in spiritual victory. God, I ask that you would do a work in us this morning. Father, I pray God, I, just, I want to pray right now for, for dads and fathers who feel like failures. God, I, I want to pray for women, for moms, for daughters who feel like they're just not enough. God, I want to pray for those caught in sin who feel like they'll never change, who, who maybe feel like they're too far gone to experience your grace. God, I want to pray for those who have deep father wounds and who have been abandoned by their dads and the the thought of you makes them think that you would one day abandon them too. And God, I want to pray that they would know the truth that you'll never leave us or forsake us. But God, wherever there was spiritual oppression this morning, I ask that it would be confessed. And God, I want to plead the blood of the Lamb In the word of our testimony over all the lies, all the accusations, all the deceptions this morning, God, may we be freed this morning. Would you break the chains? Would you allow us as a church to sing and to praise you in the freedom that only your gospel delivers? So, Father, lead us as we respond. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.